So Joe Biden's dog, Major Biden, has returned to the White House after working with a trainer in Delaware. Seems like Joe solved his major problem before he solved his minor problem. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ruthless. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome back to the Variety Program. Here we are on a Thursday. <laughs> Big day today, folks. I love how much of, of the White House messaging is about the status of his dog and none about the absolute crisis happening at the border. They're like, no, let's, let's talk about the dog, folks. Well, well even, even beyond Biden's dogs, we've got a big day here for the Variety Program. We've got another sponsor today, the Frederick Douglass Foundation, which is a national education and public policy organization with local chapters across the U.S. that brings the sanctity of free markets and limited government ideas to bear on the hardest problems facing our nation. We also have Senator Tim Scott here today on the pod. And uh, and yeah, yeah, this big Biden press conference today. I, you know, the only shame about the Tuesday, Thursday release this week is that we don't have the opportunity to weigh in uh, live on today's press conference. Which... It's going to be something like they hyped this. The, the Thursday, March 25th press conference from Joe Biden. It's been over, what, like 100 days since he's had an official press conference. Uh oh. <laughs> I think at this point, if he makes it to the podium, they'll call it a success, right? Right. They're like, it's sort of like that meme where, uh, you know, you got like the dad, um, like picking up the kid who's holding the basketball and he's dunking it for the kid (laughs) in the Fisher Price hoop. It's sort of like, that's their whole bit now in the media. Jen Rubin's, you know, publishing columns being like the Biden, uh, press conference, you know, the administration needs to push back on these journalists with fact checks. You it's know. incredible. Amazing. I mean, she's she, she's she's in you know hack madness form. She's going for it. Rupar is really going for it lately. That's a really good segue, Smug. We should we should give everyone an update of where we currently stand and where we we think uh, you know there's some good matchups. Yeah. So if we're being honest, folks, my bracket's a little little busted. <laughs> uh, I got let's see. I have seven out of my uh, Elite Eight teams still in it. Acosta just dropping the ball. That 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 broke my bracket. But I think, you know, I, I think the voting by the Minions was absolutely correct. In the absence of correct. Trump, yeah, in the absence of Trump, Acosta has nothing. That's a, that's a fading team right there. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I look at mine. My Sweet 16 have taken a little bit of a beating. You know, I didn't think Boot would get beat, frankly, much less yeah. by Jake Tapper. I, I figured Boot was going to be there for a Ruben standoff, King of the Hill style. And, you know, maybe I was rooting a little bit with my heart with Chris Hayes. I just, I felt like he's right. been so active in my own Twitter account that <laughs> I thought, gosh, it would sure be nice if he was rewarded with a trip to the Sweet 16. Not, not the case. Not the case. So, but I too, you know, my whole final four still available. I've got six of eight. I, I'm I'm feeling okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty good. Um, I've got thirteen of the sixteen. Uh, so I think right now I'm currently the clubhouse leader. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Duncan is crushing it. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Dowd, you know, kind of, I kind of took a little hit there. Um, but you know, my 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 final four is intact. Uh, I feel pretty good. Yeah. So for the very small group of folks who who haven't been following Hack Madness, you go on Twitter, you search hashtag Hack Madness. We run essentially a March Madness style tournament of 66 teams after the playing game. You get your 64, and it's just a bracket. Put them up head to head. Everyone can vote on Twitter. Uh, we just finished up the second round, so it's getting exciting. Lib journos, right? Is lib journos a thing? That's the thing. I will say it, it does appear as though sexual impropriety is playing right? a, a fierce role in minion voting this year. Like uh, Weaver is on a tear. Yeah, and his account got to, his account's defunct now. But the guy keeps rolling. Weaver has no account. He's rolling. You got Tubin. I mean, yeah, Tubin's rolling too. Man. Rolling. You know, look out. I don't know how far they can go, but a real force, a real force. Anyway, this has been the time of our life. We love this. It's like the it's the <laughs> it's literally the best. I'll say I have more fun than the actual one. I feel like some of them get the joke and they actually put a performance together. Right. Like yeah. we're, what we're watching from Jennifer Rubin surely has an impact. Right. I mean, it's, it's better every day. I mean, who comes up with the take that uh, the white house should fact check the journos? Like what? That's an incredible take. Incredible take from Jen Rubin. Or, or Bill Crystal coming out and, and yeah. DC state. DC state. for. <laughs> So good. I mean, he knows that's a tough bracket. He's he's got to show up. He's got to show up. I know. I know. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's going on. When do we? When's the next round start on so, that? So um, I I think we're gonna start posting those um on Friday, uh, you know, kind of a, ahead of the, you know, March Madness Sweet Sixteen starting uh, over this weekend. Okay. Um, so you know, by by Tuesdays pod uh we'll have some more updates there we'll we'll likely have a final four i can't wait it's gonna be amazing wow it is it's really amazing well listen we got to get into a bunch of stuff here but the one other thing that we wanted to touch on here in our in our opening is duncan you've been working on some philanthropical efforts yeah that's right um you know so there's been a lot of interest from the community that listens to the program uh, in getting Matthew Foldy, uh, famous smug assistant Matthew Foldy, and now a journo at uh, Free Beacon uh, on the program. And, um, you know, so I think, look, we got leverage here, guys. We've That's got right. some, We've uh-huh. got some serious leverage. And, you know, I, I figured if, if we're going to have him on the program, um, you know, we should do something good in the process yeah it can't so, be just free we got we have to actually yeah. do some good here yeah foldy should have to you know walk over broken glass to get on the old program absolutely uh, a little hazing ritual so basically uh what we've set up is a gofundme page um and we've told foldy if he can raise ten thousand dollars for feeding america a very worthy cause um, then he can come on the program. The stipulation is he also has to cut his hair. Correct. <laughs> but 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 we're also specific about... There's tears, right? There's tears. Well, yeah, that's right. So he has a week to, to, to raise the 10K. Um, 
but and I, I haven't actually run all of this by Foldy, you know, so he's he may be learning right now for the first time. <laughs> so this but is what you have he, to do, Foldy. It's now if long. he fails, if <laughs> if he, if he fails to reach 10k, let's say he raises like 5k, good good on him. You know, we'll probably still have him on the pod, but then we get to the hair, cut his hair cutting stays. The hair cutting stays. The hair cutting stays, but it's not going to be done by a professional. It'll be, <laughs> I, I vote Holmes with the clipper. I got some clippers. Holmes will do it. I want it. I want it. 10K, if he does it, we'll, we'll, I'll find a nice place. We'll do it professionally. If but then he, we have if, the ultimate, ultimate prize. Le, less than five. So if he raises like 7K, for example. Yeah. I'm going to cut his hair on live on the program. Deal. Okay. If he raises 10, he gets it cut. You know, we can talk about it. He's a good man, great humanitarian. The ultimate prize. Yeah. If he hits 50K, I'll let Foldy cut my hair. That's unbelievable. I can't believe you agreed to that. I totally. I mean, here's the thing, folks. So uh, the charity uh, is Feeding America. They do an incredible, incredible job of uh, helping out food pantries, communities across the country, getting folks who are having a tough time, especially during this pandemic. Uh, The numbers are staggering. How much of uh, the middle class has been just hurt by these lockdowns um, that a significant number, like I've I've read in some cases, half the people showing up to food pantries have never needed any form of assistance before. And Feeding America gets food to these folks and they know how to stretch a dollar for every dollar they provide 10 meals. So if if Foldy hits 50K, I'll be more than happy to cut my hair for half a million meals. I I just want, because Smug's appearance is a mystery, right? (laughs) What I'd like to let the minions in on, the man's got a nice head of hair. It's, it's serious flow. Serious it's, flow. It's, it's a nice head of hair. It is not the kind of hair you would give scissors to Matthew Foldy. You don't entrust this to just anybody. To work with. No, yeah. right now right now he's kind of rocking almost like a 1980s tennis player look. Totally. You know, um, you can throw a nice bandana in there to sort of like control the luscious locks. <laughs> that I'm seeing here. Um, you know, this is 100% accurate too. Right. The 50K tiers, that's worth it. It's going to look like this, like a science project if he gets to 50K though. I mean, that that yeah. sucker, I can't even imagine the amount of hostility that Foldy will take after years of being your assistant out on your hair. Also, it's it's totally worth it. If he can hit that 50, 50K mark, half a million meals, I'll, I'll end up going, uh, I'll, I'll drop by in New York to... The lady who cuts my hair at Truman's in Midtown, great place, and see if she can fix the aftermath. But yeah, if, if Foldy hits 50k, done deal. I'm so, so, so for our listeners here, Matthew Foldy, um, you know, tweeted out the the link to the uh, GoFundMe. Um, you can also find it on the Ruthless Podcast Twitter account. We're going to include a link to it on our ruthlesspodcast.com website, and we'll also put a link to it here in the show notes of this episode. So you have no excuse to not find it and chip in for a good cause. I love it. I love it. Doing some good while we have some fun. So let's let's talk about that though, because we've got another partner that we're welcoming in. Uh, everybody who has been paying attention in the last couple months knows that we're just sort of on a mission on this HR1 deal. Uh, we had Heritage Action sponsoring last episode because of the good work that they're doing. We were happy to partner with them. We're also this week 
happy to partner with the Frederick Douglass Foundation, which is another group that is leading the fight against HR1. And this is actually, this is a really, really re remarkable group. Yeah. I mean, they do amazing things um, in the communities that they help out. So the Frederick Douglass Foundation, they act as a liaison to Black, faith-based organizations, conservative candidates, party, and elected officials. Uh, they reach out and they educate uh, the social, cultural, spiritual, and civic rights needs of our country. And they train political workers, volunteers, and candidates to be leaders in the political arena. What so they great. do, yeah, they do, and they do a great job of it. Uh, they provide the tools for economic, uh, to improve the economic status of individuals, families, and businesses within the communities that they target, and that enhances the quality of life overall. They do amazing things. So uh, if you want to get involved or become a member, you visit fdfnational.org. That's fdfnational.org. And they're also doing something, you know, they have a cause that's very near and dear to our hearts as well too, right, Josh? Yeah. So this is the HR1 bit that I was referring to. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize um, where the origins of, you know, the quote unquote, dark money, uh, nonprofit status comes from. Mm -hmm. And the thing that that Frederick D Douglass Foundation is engaged in is the Democrats uh, intent at unmasking the donors of political and not political, I should say nonprofit organizations that they oppose politically, right? For years, they called it like the Disclose Act, right? Mm -hmm. Which was basically a way for Democrats to pull donors out of groups that they disagreed with and, and sort of like name and shame them, right? Well, the, the origins of that are Alabama versus the NAACP, right? The origins of the reason why we keep donors to nonprofits a secret, and it's not really a secret, but, it, but it's not disclosed, right? The reason they're not disclosed is because there is a rich history, in this case, a racially motivated history, at attempting to find out who's funding civil rights organizations mm -hmm. and then put their name out in the public for harassment, intimidation, and the like. And there was a big Supreme Court case on this back in the late 50s. There was Alabama versus NAACP that I, in my view, and this is not the, the Frederick Douglass Foundation because I don't know if they believe this or not, but in my view, really it's kind of set the stage for the stakes of this debate because mm -hmm. it still continues. And it is now being used by Democrats within the context of HR1 to try to out anybody who, who contributes to conservative causes. Yeah, where in, in initially, you know, uh, it was people or racists essentially were demanding to know the donors to the NAACP to target them. Now you see it's in a political arena where you will have Antifa or activists show up outside people's houses and harass them if they are contributing to a nonprofit that they disagree with. It's, it's awful. And that's why, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole reason that donors should be given the right to privacy giving to a nonprofit. Well, it's, I mean, if you want to, you know, go out there and you can go on TV and say, I donated to so-and-so cause I believe in it. I love it. That's on you, but you should have the right to be protected. Should you choose to be. It's proof. It's proof that time really is a flat circle because in our current political environment with 
um, you know, woke cancel culture, uh, intimidation, like you were saying, Antifa showing up on your doorstep, um, you know, this privacy for nonprofit donors is more important than ever. But in, in the 1950s, you had racists trying to intimidate the NAACP. And today you've got these woke people trying to intimidate conservatives. And so, you know, the work that they do is extremely important. Fighting HR1 is extremely important and very, very grateful to have their support here on the Variety Program. Again, I wanted to hit that website again to get involved, www.fdfnational.org. That's great. Well, and I think that's an important segue because we've got a we have a big interview that I want to get to, but this segment really needs to set it up um, because Senator Tim Scott is on the program today. He is one of the most thoughtful individuals I've come across in 20 years in Washington. This guy is exactly as advertised. What you see is what you get. He is, he is genuine. He is honest. He is thoughtful. And he is one of the smartest people I've come across. And so when he speaks, particularly on some of the divisive issues that we're talking about uh, today, I listen just like as intently as I can, right? And a a couple of days ago, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post called, Let's Set the Record Straight on Woke Supremacy and Racism. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is worth reading. And for any of you who haven't read it, go and read it. Because this is a guy who, who thinks deeply about these issues and its impact on society. And I'm, we're going to talk to him directly about it today. But here's a couple of quotes from that piece that I think set up this segment well. Woke culture is speeding our country toward ideological and literal segregation. I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that is what's become. That's what's happening here. And then, and then he goes on and to say, when you give license for one person or a group of people to discriminate, you give license for everyone to discriminate, right? In other words, there is no good discrimination. Correct. There's just not. And yet what we're seeing now from the progressive left that has been in technicolor this week because of the unfortunate tragic shootings, because of some debates that they're having over nominees in the Biden administration, is frankly a woke culture that as Tim Scott uh, suggested is speeding our country towards literal segregation. Yeah, like you heard in the news about Columbia was going to have their like separate uh, graduations for 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 separate races, separate but equal graduation. That seems very I, normal. It, it's just like if you if you go back to to the initial sort of wonderful pillars of the civil rights movement. What is being advocated by woke culture today is the exact opposite of that. Like the the MLK quote that I always come back to from the his famous I have a dream speech. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, 
but by the content of their character, right? Absolutely beautiful. Perfect. Absolutely perfect, right? That is exactly what we should strive for as a society every day. And then you fast forward to today where Senator Tammy Duckworth is in a, a spat back and forth with the Biden administration about what she feels like is an underrepresentation of Asian Americans in the cabinet. Fair, right? That's a fair criticism. Frankly, I think she's probably right about that. Yeah. Right? But this is her remedy. And I'm quoting from a Chad Pergram of Fox News tweet that he has here of, of something Senator Duckworth said. Quote, I am a no vote on the floor for all non-diversity nominees. You know, I will vote for racial minorities and I will vote for LGBTQ. But for anybody else, I'm not voting for. Unquote. And, and bottom line, this is straight up. This is discrimination against qualified people. A hundred percent. That's it, what this is. I just can't imagine that we are. How is it that the people who are supposed to be most thoughtful about identity and most you know, progressive in terms of inclusion and working towards justice, frankly, sound the most like Bull Connor of anybody out there. Yeah, and it's, it's seeped into like every avenue of our life beyond just like the political, you even see like universities uh, are now ascribing to this. An example I want to give and just read a very short thing is, so uh, students for fair admissions sued Harvard University uh, on the basis that Harvard University was uh, issuing quotas and not letting a lot of Asian American students in. Um, so during the lawsuit, the plaintiffs gained access to Harvard's individualized admission files from 2014 to 2019 and aggregate data over that time period as well. Um, from these sources, the plaintiffs revealed that Harvard's admissions officers consistently rated Asian American applicants as a group lower than others on traits like personality, likability, courage, kindness, uh, while the same students scored higher than applicants of any other racial or ethnic group or other admissions me uh, measures like test scores, grades, and ex extracurricular activities. So the basis of them rejecting these students wasn't on their academic achievement. They said, we will only allow this number of this uh, race, and we don't want this race to be represented on the campus. So that's a no for these Asian American students. It's, that's what ends up happening when you have these kind of systems. It's it's remarkably ironic, obviously, right? You've got the progressive left who build themselves as anti-racist and core to their political project is racial politics. Yeah. It's, it, it's you know, Tammy Duckworth wants to impose like a racial quota on who's in the cabinet for Joe Biden. She and another twist of irony, her colleagues, the Senate Democrats, call the filibuster a relic of Jim Crow, <laughs> racist. And now she's going to use the filibuster to get a racial quota that she wants. I mean, it's enough to make your head explode. That is, that's amazing, right? The yeah. relic of Jim Crow being used to either confirm or deny a nominee exclusively on the basis of their race. It's insane. 
It's just, it's, but like, how do you get here? You know, the thing is, it's just poison. It's just poison. You know, I mean, this is is so bad for the country. It's just so horrible for every community. I don't know anyone who thinks like this, by the way. I, I, I don't know anyone who thinks like this. And yet this, this foothold of woke progressive, I guess, activist left is just conquering the Democratic Party. And you see it where, uh, you know, I, I noticed after that horrific shooting in Boulder, this just instinctual response among, uh, you know, left wing activists and even their politicians to, sit, to, to view it exclusively through the prism of race. And instantly they're like, uh, like Mina Harris had a tweet where she said that Atlanta shooting was not even a week ago. Violent white men are the greatest terrorist threat to our country. Instantly viewing it through a prism of race when in actuality, she was completely wrong. <laughs> it wasn't, I mean, she had to delete the tweet because it wasn't a, a white man, but that's beside the point, right? The fact that that's your instinctual. Yep, that's the problem. And, and know, this is, this for our listeners, this is the niece of the vice president of the United States, correct? Yeah, I think it means, yeah, okay, that's correct, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it's really, it really is incredible because it's not, it's Twitter. Imagine what they say in private. I mean, imagine what the the private conversations about race sound like when you're going on to Twitter to say, you know, certain people are the most dangerous element of society, like a whole class, a whole race. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like this, but I keep coming back to this, like the horrors of racism that stemmed from the original sin of America. The cascaded that we still deal with today, that you that that were fought and many lost their lives for during the civil rights movements in the 50s and the 60s. That's the content of the character argument, not the color of the skin argument. And somehow these people have brought back the color of the skin as being the ultimate determiner about whether or not you have virtue. I mean, what the hell are we missing? This is crazy. And 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 there's real world negative implications for minority communities when this so-called anti-racist woke left mentality moves into the new luxury high rise in the neighborhood. There's a story from Texas Monthly. So these white liberals who are moving into an Austin neighborhood um, in East Austin, historically a black and brown community, are now trying to basically end one of these traditions that goes on in the local neighborhood. It's, it's a car club where residents would, would gather, you know, park their cars, have conversations, have been going on in East Austin for years. And now these white liberals, and we've talked about this pre- previously on the podcast, you know the type, um, they post a black square on Instagram to celebrate Black Lives Matter, but they're the first to post some vaguely racist rant on their next door app about, you know, a black kid they see in the neighborhood. And I'll just quote here from the story. One particularly vocal tenant, a non-Hispanic white woman with short blonde hair who appeared to be in her 50s, claimed that smoke from the tires was killing nearby trees and that traffic from the gathering would make it impossible for an ambulance to reach her in the event of a medical emergency. And this is in parentheses. Though two other roads 
to the apartment building remain accessible at all times. Another resident voiced more generalized criticism, calling the event a, quote, display of toxic masculinity. Amazing. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, the story later goes on to say, many of the new newest residents obsess over exaggerated threats to their safety. Next door, a neighborhood social media app bristles with concerns about unfamiliar vehicles being parked on the street, and complaints <laughs> about loud music that violates, violates city noise ordinances. I mean, guys, this is classic white liberal bullshit. It, it is. really is. It reminds me of the Loudoun County thing we were talking about last week with Katie Pavlich, you know, where it's like, all of the the woke next door app uh, people who were posting the black squares on Instagram all of a sudden are calling the cops. I mean, it's it's um, the hypocrisy is incredible, but it's it seems endemic. Like this it, this is a sick, poisonous culture that is now endemic in the progressive left, and I don't know how we get through it. Like it's it's dangerous. I mean, it absolutely is. And, and like I said, bottom line, it just boils down to it's discrimination against qualified people. Yeah, it, it, it just, it, but it, it goes back, to, it's even bigger. I mean, it goes back to the foundation of the civil rights movement and the content of one's character and, and how it really shouldn't matter, you know, what your identity is. And I understand, believe me, I understand the, the backdrop that we live in and how you have to make sure that you understand that opportunities have not been equal. They have right. not been equal. And, and, and we have to make an effort to ensure as a society that we understand that, you know, but then to take, go from, from that leap to just straight up like racism is remarkable. Well, and here's here's another real world impact of this sort of white liberal thinking. You know, they all supported Joe Biden's COVID bill. You know, we're going to send, you know, we're going to send 122 billion dollars to the teachers unions and they're going to reopen these schools because Biden's the best president. All right? It's, it's not their kids who are being hurt by this. No, they now we find school. right, now we find out Randy um, Weingarten from uh, the American Federation of Teachers, you know, large teachers union says Biden's 122 billion in the COVID bill, quote, may not be enough to implement changes. Unbelievable. And it's, 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 it's underprivileged, you know, black and brown kids who will suffer the most because of that. And no white liberal will care. Well, and oh, by the way, we hate school choice. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. So, so just in case you're, you're not totally reliant upon us. We're actually, yeah, no, you know, you are totally reliant on us. We're, we're not going to allow you to have a choice in where you go to school. You have to go to the schools that are closed. It's incredible. But I mean, the whole op-ed, if you haven't read it, folks, that Tim Scott put out was, I mean, it was just fire all the way through, all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get to the interview because I think, um, I think the man himself is, certainly more gifted than I will ever be uh, anywhere near these issues. Yeah, I want to hear it. Let's go right to it. Senator Tim Scott, welcome to Ruthless. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be on the show. Well, listen, we are so happy that you've joined us. Uh, we think you are 
amongst the most thoughtful, uh, intelligent members of the United States Senate. And I, and I don't pass out compliments like that. Everybody, I've been around long enough to be pretty cynical about, <laughs> about senators and politicians. I, I'm just constantly impressed by the work that you and, and your staff does on a day in and day out basis. And, and I want to start there because you wrote an op-ed this week in the Washington Post. And we don't yes. always advocate that our, list, that our listeners read the Washington Post. I want, I want you to know that. But in this case, it is a must yes. read. And this op-ed by you is entitled, Let's Set the Record Straight on Woke Supremacy and Racism. You know, one of the challenges that we have when you have soundbite opportunities on TV is you have a soundbite opportunity. It's just not very long. So when you think about something as important as discrimination, racism, and the roots of it, you, you can't go very far without touching on the really three and a half centuries of, of America's history as provocative as it is on the issue of race and oppression and discrimination, uh, slavery, the original sin. But when you look into the future, it's undeniable that if it, were, if it was wrong for you as a white guy to discriminate against me, then it is equally as wrong for me to discriminate against you. This new woke culture seems to reinforce and then codify in law that the theory of an eye for an eye is the way that we should live our lives. And I'm a person who believes that there's a better choice, that there's a simply a better option. That option is for us to work on a great opportunity society that creates a fair playing field for everyone. And unfortunately, if you look at the latest COVID package, what you don't walk away with Walk, walk away from it, is some theory of fairness. You can't first give $86 billion to labor unions, pension plans that have over-promised and under-delivered and call that fair to those people who are paying the taxes. You can't ask for the average American family to pay $22,000 to provide COVID relief, air quotes, on a package that is a progressive payment plan and not about COVID relief. You certainly cannot codify into law that it's okay for us to help all struggling farmers except white ones. Right. Having been on the wrong end of racism most of my life, the last thing that ever could make sense to me is making it legal to discriminate against anyone because if you make it legal to discriminate against one race of people, you have certainly made it legal to discriminate against all other races that you that fall out of favor whenever that happens. And so listening to my friends on the on the left about this about wokeism, I just fundamentally disagree with their approach to solving the problems of our nation. We have problems, but let's not add wokeism to the list of problems. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that sort of is mind boggling to me is how you have been able to stay so patient and um, so calm about a political environment that ultimately you watch Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer go to a press conference with kente cloths and all of a sudden claim to speak for the African-American community and that's got to just frustrate you to no end. Well, there's no question that when you 
let me just be blunt, Josh, as I as I rarely am. Virtue signaling is one of the worst concepts for real justice I've seen. And having the right clothing on, the right garb on, should not make me feel better about what you or anyone else has done to me. Uh, <laughs> the way I look at it is the, the, the greatest supporters of the, of, of, of uh, you know, of the, the liberal left now, the, the think about think about Hollywood, think about their construct around labor bosses. And here's the one thing you can think about. Go back to 1931 with the Davis-Bacon Act, and you'll come to the conclusion very quickly that labor wanted to eliminate competition, and most of the competition it wanted to eliminate was small black businesses winning federal government contracts. So they codified in law this concept of a minimum wage that must be paid to all employees to get rid of black businesses. It's, it's that simple. Think if you will, about how often Hollywood depicted African-Americans in the most vile, subhuman or, or dehumanizing ways. And, and now you see this flurry of TV commercials suggesting that everybody's equal now. Well, for 80 years, you said that Tim Scott and people that look like me, we were criminals. We were the least of these. We were the forgotten, the disenfranchised. You, they reinforce this image on screen after screen after screen after screen for eight decades. And all of a sudden, an epiphany occurs, and they are now going to tell me what I should think about myself. Wow. That's tough. It's just fascinating, frustrating, and absolutely outside this universe I live in. Can you... Can we still have these conversations in the way that you... I mean, you... you you put yourself out there and I just applaud your, your bravery because you're, you keep going at it. You keep having candid, honest conversations and time and again, you're met with huge intolerance on the left. So, uh, racism, outright racism. Um, I, can we still have this conversation? You know, with that, I've often said without civility in the public forum, the, the size and the grandeur of our dreams, our aspirations and our ideas begin to shrink. They shrivel because we need civil discourse. We need to be able to debate the greatest issues of our time. We need to be able to look into the future and say that here is a problem. And if we don't have a public forum that is fit for disagreement, for strong debate, we will not be able to solve the greatest problems this world has ever seen because those problems have not yet arrived. Uh -huh. And when that day comes, it has to be America, the city on the hill, a light that shines beyond our borders, telling people that this is the way of due north. Losing that position levels, not the playing field, but levels this notion of hope an opportunity for the world and not just here at home. Oh man, that is, that is music to my ears. I agree with every single word that you said. So let's transition to something that's currently happening because I, I think I've found great amusement in Senate Democrats talking about the filibuster 
uh, as a, a Jim Crow oh. relic, uh, while also uh, forgetting that, like, you know, we're like seven months re removed from filibustering your police reform bill. How do you, how do they square in that circle? Yes. Well, you know, they, they must have very, very short memories, number one, because the truth <laughs> of the matter is that if you just go to the most recent past, the, the, the most effective use of the filibuster was to stop racial progress in the justice system on my Justice Act. Let me, let me say that a little slower, just in case you have some liberals listening. Yes. The filibuster was used to stop resources like the duty to intervene, like de-escalation training that could have helped Kenosha, Wisconsin from actually happening. It stopped between coupling the Justice Act and President Trump's executive order. We could have had co-responders, perhaps funded and prepared to deal with those folks who are unstable mentally, but outside of that, not a threat. In other words, the, the literal dollars that could de-escalate and save lives was blocked by the filibuster on the left, not because of its racist past, because I'm not sure that it has one, but because they were using any tools necessary to stop the Republican party and my legislation from being seen in the eyes of victims of real discrimination differently. They did not want the Republican party and my legislation to be the difference maker on a, a host of issues from body cameras to no-knock warrants to the chokehold to uh, get, 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 gathering more data to best practices nationwide. They, they stopped all of that from becoming law. And now, somehow now, the filibuster is a relic from a racist past. Well, A, it's been around forever, and B, uh, the civil rights era saw Republicans and Democrats come together with more Republicans than Democrats voting for civil rights legislation in the 60s. So the truth be told, we... <laughs> Let me, Josh, can I just say this uh, quickly? Yeah, well, of course. If I can get if I can get the general public to think that the Republican Party is racist, then nothing the party says, nothing the party does, will matter. Because if I believe you don't see me as equal and human, I won't think of you at all. The Democrat strategy has less to do with solving problems of our racial past and more to do with solving the problem of power in the future. Oh. That's what this filibuster debate is really about. 100%. And they will lose the day they get rid of that. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I wanna get into that, but, but to your point, explicitly, they're getting rid of it for HR1, right? It's not, it, this is not about an improvement to any lives in America. It's about trying an election system that gives them a better chances every November. When you look at HR1 or S1, one of the things you have to walk away with is asking, scratching your head. Now, I, I don't know if I 
agree that every 16-year-old is ready to be a, a participant in our election process. Lord As a matter of fact, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that old Tim Scott, as good of a football player as he was, was not ready for a civics lesson or the advanced citizenship that is required here in America. Therefore, when you're able to serve in our nation's military, I think you should have the right to vote. When you can put your life on the line for this country, you should have the right to determine the future of this country. Uh, so I think of it as very, very simple. This is nothing more than a power grab taking power from the states and nationalizing it and then, of course, they're going to add states to make sure that they have this new majority that is bulletproof. Once they change the law, they must change the system of who votes in order to keep that system in place. That does not sound like racial progress in any way, shape, or form. That sounds like a liberal takeover of America's future. It's one of the reasons why I consistently say their, their goal is to fundamentally transform what it means to be an American. Yeah, that, there's no question. That is absolutely right. And, and they're trying to stack the decks so sufficiently well, against any sort of conservative that it's impossible to compete. I mean, the, all the various reforms contained within H.R. 1, S. 1, but ultimately what doing away with the filibuster means in terms of making D.C. a state, Right. Which ultimately, yes. you know, they, they lead you to believe that's about voting rights for people, it's about voting rights for people. It's about two more Democratic senators. That's what it's about. 100 percent. I mean, they, listen, the, the one thing that uh, they do not do on the left is waste a crisis. Right. I mean, the COVID relief package is is 9 percent COVID health care, 1 percent vaccine and 90 percent progressive wish list. I mean, they refuse to. So if we had five COVID relief packages that passed under Republican control of the Senate, Republican in the White House, with 90 votes in the Senate, the first relief package by Democrats that is not a relief package was voted purely by partisans. Because when you no longer are focused on the relief of people suffering because of COVID, and you're only focusing on the future of liberal policies, you, you kind of lose all the Republicans. Uh, this is kind of simple common sense from my perspective. <laughs> Call me. I'm even looking for John Desai. I'm not really sure, but I, I think this is a common sense. So we've got, we know we've got to fight, fight them with everything we've got on their agenda. But the one thing I ask you, I don't ask everybody this, but I, I think you're sort of uniquely positioned because of how you view the world and your sort of optimism in addition to beating back bad liberal ideas that set us back culturally, economically, and everything else, how do we turn this around, right? How, how do we get back to arguing for optimistic, conservative principles in a clear way? You know, Josh, great question. And the answer is kind of simple. Uh, the, my synopsis on the answer is we have to go where we're not invited. We literally have to start campaigning and marketing in areas that we've never thought of before. Because what has happened is if you watch MSNBC, and unfortunately it's on in my gym, I wish they would just turn that TV off, uh, but they won't. I've asked the manager and the manager said, seriously, dude, uh, we have Fox too. I'm like, well, we need to have Fox and Fox Business then to make up for MSNBC 
being on the screen way too much. Uh, but if you watch MSNBC, you never ever hear anything other than those guys over there are racist. The black ones and the white ones are all racist. Yeah. I love my mama. I'm not sure what, you know, why is that such a surprise to people? I don't know. But literally, here's what we have to think to ourselves. We have to find a way to get into that space where people of good intent are being brainwashed, frankly, because they're having this drip system. It's just drips on them all day long that Republicans are racist. Republicans are racist. Republicans are racist. When you hear that all the time, here's what you forget, by the way, Josh. Here's what you have to forget in order to believe that those concepts or that, or that mindset. Number one, you have, to, you have to forget the fact that under the last three Democrat presidents, they were unable to make funding for historically black colleges and universities permanent. But under the Republican administration, we made it permanent. We also, according to the head of the United Negro College Fund, took it to a record level of funding. We also focused our attention on the research on rare blood diseases and specifically on the research for sickle cell anemia. 100% black disease. This is, a, I'm talking about the racist party, by the way. Yeah, According right. to my friends to the left. We, we took the unemployment rate for the first time in the history of this country to under 6% for African-Americans. At the same time we took the unemployment rate down, we took the labor, the labor force participation rate within, within the black community, we took that up, which is really hard to do, by the way, because as you know, there's, a, there's typically an inverse relationship. It's easier to take your unemployment down as long as your labor force participation rate stays down. But when you're, uh, I'm probably getting a little too wonky here. Let, let me yeah, just continue on. Um, we saw, <laughs> All right. We saw poverty go, go to the lowest level since 1959. The first time we started recording, we've never seen poverty this low. The, the, the wage inequality gap started to shrink. Why? Because President Trump's economic policies, creating 7 million jobs, bringing two-thirds of those jobs into the households of women, brown people, and black people, actually lowers uh, that income inequality First, second thing that it did was the lowest quintile, the, the bottom quintile had a 5% increase in income while the top was around 2.7. So in other words, free market policies and a responsible level of regulations, the coupling of those two drove pressure to the bottom where the wages went up faster than at the top. That closes the income inequality gap and because we had a 41% black homeownership rate in 2016, we have a 46.4% at the end of 2019 heading into the pandemic. We also see the wealth gap go down because the difference between black wealth and white wealth predominantly is in the equity in a home. So when you start seeing the numbers go up in the black community and home ownership, you see the numbers go down from a wealth gap. If we solve the issue of education, we now have the great opportunity party full speed ahead. So we do two things. Number one, we answer your question about how do we get things on the right track? And B, we demonstrate to a watching world that not only is the Republican Party not racially insensitive, we are we are the party of progress, not progressive party, but the party of progress for all Americans. Because we did that 
At the same time, we lowered Asian unemployment rate to under 3%. We lowered Hispanic unemployment rate to 4.2%. We lowered white unemployment to 3.1%. We lowered female unemployment to a 70-year low. So the market is the fastest way for us to get parity, not mandates around equity, but mandates around opportunity. We want those who put in the same thing to get out the same thing. We don't want an unequal distribution. If you put in differently, you should get out differently. Right. right. This is, you know, talk about a five-tool player, Senator. You just made an X lesson, uh, you know, pretty uplifting. I, and, and it's something worth listening to. That's tough. That's tough to do. <laughs> I love it. Says, uh, I feel civics and I like math, so I tried to put the two together. You did it, and I can't believe you did it because there's basically nobody who can do it. Like Ross Perot tried, right? And that's kind of like the last guy I think that had any success at it. But what I just heard from you makes a ton of sense. I love it. I got three impressions, though, and I got to get to you. I wish we could spend yes, sir, two hours it. talking about all of it, but I got to get to these three because they cut to the soul of every politician. And we got, you know, this yes, is, these are revealing things here. So, your uh -oh. meal on earth, Scott, what would it be? Well, last meal on earth would start, of course, with an appetizer of a uh, order of French fries from McDonald's. My entree, of course, would be the largest burger, a double beef patty with cheddar cheese in the middle, melted in the middle, of course. Uh, it would be followed with dessert. It would be my Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream that I'm now allergic to. After 50 years of living, I became allergic to ice cream. God, God humor. Uh, and so I would finish it off with that ice cream. So I haven't had it in five years. Well, and you don't have to worry about the allergic reaction at that point, right? Because it's, yes. Yes. You're, you're on your way, way out. out. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. So if you were not involved in politics, if you were not in the United States, what would you be doing with your life? You know, I would be a uh, more of an evangelist. I would love to travel the country and the world sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think there's a lot of life lessons that uh, our country was built upon. The Judeo-Christian foundation of this nation is why people who don't believe in either faith or Christianity or, or the Jewish faith, uh, you, you still have a place. You have, we, we are supposed to be tolerant of people who are not like ourselves. That is embedded in the founding father's perspective of this nation, as flawed as they may have been, they founded us upon the right rock, and that rock does not move. So if I could share some of the biblical principles around economics, around faith, around hope and love, I think it would be a life worth worth living. Yeah, beautifully said. All right, so here's the third and final question. Yes, sir. What motivates you more, the victory or the agony of defeat? Absolutely the thrill of victory. All right. All right. Well, that's good, you know, because here's the thing. Everybody comes at these things differently. I had McConnell was on the program on Tuesday and he tried to convince me that yes. it's a thrill of victory for him. But I know like he celebrates his victories for about 30 seconds and starts working to pr try to prevent the next loss. Right. So, so I yes. call him out on it. you are, I think, one of the most transparently obvious thrill of victory guys I've ever met. <laughs> well, I love the victory. Listen, I, I, I actually love it so much that I, I root for teams that one day will win. So I keep my thrill of victory waiting for next season, whether I'm a Gamecock fan or a Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, while I love the thrill of victory, I have to look back 25 years to, 
remember a Super Bowl or frankly an 11 win season was about a decade ago for my Gamecocks. But I love winning. I do love winning and I don't like changing horses in the middle of the race. This is a lifelong race and we're going to, we're going to win another Super Bowl. I know well, we are. 2032 is going to be way. With, with leaders like Senator Tim Scott, I feel like the Republican Party is going to be doing an awful lot of winning. I can't thank you enough for the time that you spent with us, but more importantly, the work that you're doing, which everybody follow what he's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's incredible. It's really helpful for conservatism, our party, ultimately our country. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jessica, being with you. Yeah, have a great day. So first off, impossible not to like the guy. Impossible. Yeah. yeah. I've never met any person and that, that includes many, many progressive Democrats. I've never met any person who has a negative word to say about Tim Scott ever. He is, he is an incredible human being, but he's also got a heck of a lot of courage because, you know, <clears throat> it's easy for, you know, some of us to just sort of speak out about these things that we find are, you know, abhorrent. It's tough when you're a guy like him who has stood at the intersection of trying to have candid conversations in a, in a environment that doesn't allow for it. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're in a cancel culture environment and he's the guy who gets rained on every time he wants to have a truthful, impactful conversation because nobody on the progressive left wants to hear that. Nope. Well, because it's inconvenient for their established narrative that Republicans right. are racist. And so, right. you know, they, they, they can't reconcile Tim Scott and his um, I ideology and his opinions with the way that they see the world. Yeah, I mean, the greatest thing is uh, their accusations that the filibuster is, is a remnant of the Jim Crow era, it's the Jim Crow. Uh, yeah, uh, relic. Thing, relic. Uh, and then they used it against Tim Scott when he had the police reform bill. So it's really something. And, and it just seems to blow right past everybody, right? Well, it's not blowing past the Ruthless Variety program. I'll tell you that much. We yeah, are, that was a hell of an interview, man. Good stuff. I think that's going to make some news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, look, we said we, we sing, we dance, we entertain, but every once in a while we serve up the vitamins. Yeah, this, this was a this is a good episode. It, it, it's like chicken soup for the soul, right here. That was that was that was a good episode. There's some information that folks need to hear. Yeah. So one 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 more plug here before we sign off here, Smug. Again, we have the Foldy fundraiser benefiting um, Feeding America. Um, you can go to our Twitter account. You can go to our website um, or the show notes here on the episode to find the link to donate. Let's cut Foldy's hair. Let's get him on the pod. Yes. Let's raise a lot of money for a good, good. Let's pod. cut Smug's hair. <laughs> yeah. Let's get Smug's. that 50K. I'll do it. That's at Ruthless Podcast on Twitter. And yeah. uh, I think that's a wrap, folks. Let's, let, yeah. let's wrap this episode up. Let's do so, it. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless. <laughs>